Welcome to Research Conversations podcast with host V. Vale, brought to you by Research Publications and Books. Today we're sharing with you a conversation from 2004 between Vale and the late Dirk Dirksen. Thank you very much. Hi, welcome to the Counterculture Hour. I'm your host, V. Vale, and I published uh, back starting in 77, The Search and Destroy, which is a punk rock publication chronicling the rise of the punk rock cultural revolution. And my guest tonight is Dirk Dirksen, who um, hosted the only club in town that would even allow punk to happen. We would not have had a punk rock evolving cultural scene without him. Well, I think at the same time, the presence of your magazine and the fact that it came out and that it survived shows that you had the kind of commitment that you need when a city is looking for a scene or an area wants a scene. You have to have many different kinds of art, meaning that you need people that can take photos, people that can write, people that can design things for the stage or this or that, and that's what we had, and that was unique. And the fact that you have kept it going this long, which sort of goes together with the fact that we were open for 10 years, did 3,600 plus concerts, and allowed 22,785 people to to get on stage and do their thing for the audience. We really haven't had that many undergrounds. We ha really haven't had that many bohemias in the history of the world. We just haven't had the freedom to have them. I mean, you have to have a certain amount of, I think you need low rent. You definitely need a certain amount of free time and uh, independent income, wherever you get it. And you need uh, to have a place to meet. You also need a theory, I think, but that's another matter. And, uh, and you need a place to meet that's cheap, that doesn't cost a lot of money. And uh, I think that uh, the Mabuhai Gardens, which uh, Dirk uh, was the impresario of, met all the qualifications of, uh, for one thing, it was set in a Filipino supper club in North Beach. And that meant that people of all ages could gather. That's very important. You didn't just have to be 21. And at that economy and time, uh, you could live on very little rent compared to now. And uh, you, you really didn't have to work much to uh, enter the punk rock cultural revolution. And the thing was, at the time, Things were so conservative that no club wanted anything to do with punk rock until Dirk Dirksen showed up on, and made the Mabuhai Gardens available. Oh, don't get so excited. bunch of wusses. Are you guys over the hill? Come on, let's hear it. 
No, they're drinking their Gatorade backstage, so they can't hear you. They're isolated in their little room of luxury while you are hot and sweaty out here. So let's hear it. Work a little bit. Okay. First of all, Dirk, I'd like to know, you have to be some kind of an outsider in your background to have had the breadth of vision, the tolerance to allow something like a punk rock cultural revolution that everyone else was afraid of to happen at the Mabuhai. There is a uh, misconception that uh, it was punk that motivated me. It was, in my case, that I was looking to provide a open forum and that I personally get off on seeing the genesis of the uh, creative process. Uh, when it gets into recording, it's really a manufacturing process because people are creating something in which the performer is no longer actively involved. It's the uh, promotion people, the engineers that control the printing press of the recording or the stamping press that, uh, that they're making, the, uh, the record albums, uh, DVDs, and so forth. And that just is not my uh, cup of tea in terms of uh, getting me excited. So the reason we created the uh, Mabuhai was to set up the parameters that would protect the artist in terms we would provide the sound system, we'd provide a stage, uh, the security, the insurance, and blah blah, all the other elements that go into uh, making a house a good house for the performers to perform in and the audience uh, in which to see. I mean, we went into details to look at how high we should make the, the stage in terms of the relationship to the people. And mm. by doing that, uh, we broke down the traditional barriers of the performer looking down on the... Uh, the uh, the audience, so that the audience felt more like, hey, those are my friends up there, and gave them the ability to relate. There were challenges, for instance, the audience, because of being given a little bit more freedom than, let's say, when they would go to one of the mainstream concerts at the mainstream clubs or venues, and uh, that was a big factor at making it exciting for the audience, where uh, when you went to uh, uh, the, uh, the other venues, you were told to sit down, get out of the aisles, because that's a fire break, and all of that. And we sort of violated those, those preconceived uh, concept of what it meant to be a member of the audience. The fact that it was a building that housed the theater, 
and uh, a reference you made that because it was a Filipino supper club and piano bar had nothing to do with that it was either Filipino supper club or a bar. It was that it served food. That's the legal uh, point that you have to have. If you serve food and you have a liquor license, in theory, you can bring in people of all ages. So that was one of the things that I was looking for when we opened the venue because we didn't want to restrict it to specific ages. It was interesting that same, on that same note, there were people actually in L.A. that said, oh, he went into a Filipino place. Well, those are Asian folks, so let's look for another restaurant that's Asian. That's where you have, all of a sudden, a lot of Asian restaurants, Chinese restaurants, uh, playing host to what the other, so other segments of the population said, well, Dirk's doing punk. No, I was trying to do avant-garde rock and roll. In other words, people that were walking down the uh, path of uh, the cutting edge. So, uh, but the main bottom line was I like seeing people have the ability to, uh, to go out there and express themselves. So my main contribution, as I see it, was to provide a venue that was as free as possible of restrictions. Crime always claimed that they were using an Asian tuning system for music. So the whole bit was, though, it does cause a problem when you book somebody of one genre and then have a totally opposing genre. It sometimes makes for interesting programming, but you sort of have to know what the genre of music is. So that was the motivation behind opening the map. Didn't you mention earlier that <clears throat> there's kind of a history to that particular building of theater? Oh, yes. It had a rich history in theater, and so they weren't all that opposed to when I asked uh, to uh, get a lease from them. But just uh, the day that I came to San Francisco, they had sh signed John Hendricks' Evolution of the Blues, mm. which ran for five or six years, so we couldn't get the, uh, the upstairs. But Ness downstairs at the uh, Mabuhai uh, was having a tough go of it. And so I came in and said, look, how about if you give us uh, Monday nights, because that's your dark night, let me try that, and I'll guarantee you $175 uh, a night at the bar. <laughs> I didn't have $175 at the time, but I figured people are, there are enough people that I know that if I say, hey, come on down, you know, if they each drink two beers, we'll, we'll meet the, uh, the guarantee. And uh, within a very short time, we were grossing more on the Monday than he was grossing on a weekend with name Filipino acts. Uh, the uh, Filipino uh, Elvis, that was Eddie Mesa, and Amapola uh, and others, that, and female impersonators. So it, it worked. But the Filipino community, even though they're very gregarious, they were more centered out by uh, in the area of Daly City.
So uh, they they began not wanting to come in all the way to uh, to Broadway, and Broadway was really in a tough bind in those uh, in those times because the the uh, topless bars and places were beginning to fail. So you had a lot of disgruntled people that were really pressuring the audience to come in their joints and uh, stiffing them with uh, watered-down drinks and things like that. So the area had a seedy appeal uh, where uh, the first group of people that I worked with were the Le Nicolettes, a feminist uh, comedy guerrilla team, uh, all female, I mean women from... uh, that were friends of Art and Jim Mitchell because these were the gals that would take the tickets and uh, answer the phones and such. And what their idea was, they wanted to sing off key so that they could uh, uh, sort of pass for talent if all of them did it, and they wore uh, wonderfully tacky old fur coats from the 20s and gowns and dresses, and uh, where their gorilla instincts came to play was like uh, when the opera would have its annual opening, they'd go to the buy tickets to the opening night, and they would <laughs> act like real bad young women by screaming in the lobby and talking about the the uh oh the you mean they, they did interventions yes intervention comedic Street intervention theater yes, performance yes. Art yes before yes. it was called that right well you know san francisco has always i think since day one has been a very radical tolerant place i mean in that particular part of town where the mabuhai was that's where all the whorehouses were at one time yeah. started starting right after the so-called gold rush yeah and um and the, I can see why there's a Filipino supper club there because there actually used to be a lot of, of Filipino male workers yes. living there in that exact neighborhood. And in fact, a lot of them got kicked out in the International Hotel and that was closed. And I saw the Les Nicolettes. I mean, they were trying to be kind of a, a 20s, I don't know, flapper girl act to me, kind of mixed with, Absolutely minimal rehearsal and minimal preoccupation—excuse me—preoccupation with technique, vocal technique, as you alluded to. Oh, absolutely! You know. But that was the humor of seeing what they could get away with. Oh, at San Francisco, yeah. I mean, we had you know the Cockettes, which were fantastic. We had the Angels of Light. I mean, uh, and I, I don't personally. Uh, remember exactly when, but this has always been like a, a gay mecca, uh, you know, the Bay Area. I mean, not for nothing do the truckers call it Gay Bay, mm-hmm. you know, in the in the 70s trucker lingo, CB and all mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that a lot of people, for whatever reason, who are attracted are, are often attracted to theater and performance, and the performative arts. And... Uh, you know, hence the richness of San Francisco. I mean, from my take, San Francisco is perhaps the the incubation of undergrounds. I mean, at least recently, 
like the Beats, Allen Ginsberg Howe. I mean, that, that wasn't published in New York. That was published here. And uh, the first so-called Beat poetry reading was here in San Francisco, not in Greenwich Village. And uh, I think the hippie movement, 10 years later, you know, that was here rather than anywhere else that had it got its support. And a lot of it had to do with uh, cheap rent, you know. And, oh, I think uh, that played a big part, the, the rent structure in those days. There's a no question. And also the liberality with which uh, people could get unemployment, uh, welfare, oh, yes. and all of that. But it also, though, there is an attitude of that's definitely different from Los Angeles and here. I came here from L.A. where I was doing mainstream concerts. Uh, Ray Charles, The Supremes, uh, Strawberry Alarm Clock, uh, and the like. So it was a cross-section of everything from serious jazz or blues and rock and roll acts. Chicago uh, was one that I brought out, was that the guys at William Morris kept bugging me, and it was uh, David Geffen <laughs> when he mm. was a, a booker at uh, William Morris. Mm. And uh, he, they needed a gig out here so that they could visit the recording studios and mm. work deals. But uh, I got disenchanted with the lack of the creative, the newness, it was a manu you know, the, the, uh, the planning stages of the manufacturing process. So uh, it just didn't turn me on anymore, so I moved up here and instantly fell in love with uh, the uh, community, the people uh, that were willing to try stuff. And we had the wonderful proximity to the Art Institute, which a lot of the really creative acts and even some of the punk acts were highly influenced, even though that they denied it, their heritage to the, uh, to the uh, Art Institute. And uh, that, plus the fact that the... the uh, Broadway strip had a certain naughtiness because of the sexual freedom that was there. That mix, it had an interesting effect that there wasn't that much of a gay audience up there. Yes, there because, was. I went to P Finocchio's. Yeah, there was the Anxious Ass. There are but, lots of places. But Finocchio's was not really a gay place. It was a tourist venue. You wouldn't see a young gay there. You would see guys with white uh, patent leather shoes and white pants and their ladies with polyester suits. But uh, the, the, when the Mabuhai opened, a number of factors began playing in uh, to the mix because of the fact that we had done the, the uh, Les Nicolettes. It opened it to comedy. And if you recall, the first uh, Ramones concert, uh, Robin Williams was the stand-up comedian. And to this day, Robin always says, oh, the nightclub from hell. And uh, one time during a uh, uh, 
awake for uh, Freaky Ralph. I don't know if you remember Freaky Ralph. He did the Rotten Record chart. He was, uh, at that time, uh, uh Biafra's roommate. Mm. So it was interesting, these little mixes. But uh, when uh, Robin did the introduction of the Ramones, that brought in a lot of comedic talent. We had a, uh, uh, a dinner show because early on in the evening we could do performances, but nothing with loud live music. Mm. So we always tried for comedy, for dancing, and blah, blah, whatever, other than heavy uh, rock music or high-volume music. And we had a show called, uh, it was a spaghetti dinner, a buck ninety-nine, seven-course dinner and seven-course comedians. <laughs> out of that, there a lot. Bobby Slayton was one of the right, yeah. talents uh, of that, and uh, so that brought in a new blood up there, which hadn't been there because it was predominantly when we started on Broadway. It was predominantly big uh, uh, and nudity, and we tried in every which way to bring a little bit of humor. When the audience was into throwing bottles at the stage in the early stages, we said, boy, we got to do something. You know, I don't want to put a wire mesh in front of the stage, but people were definitely getting beaned. Sick and wire. I, per I personally had my nose bloodied about six or seven times. I thought you had broke. it broken six or oh, seven yeah, times. Yeah, well, I mean, I, yes. I mean, look at it. So we, we opted not to put a mesh screen, but uh, we put out huge barrels of popcorn, 55-gallon drums of over-salted popcorn, so that people would throw it around. And uh, in my comedy Didn't routine... Didn't you have paper cups so that they didn't throw bottles anymore. Well, we switched to paper cups and to uh, cans. The problem with the paper cups, it takes forever to pour them out of the uh, uh, the beers. No. Oh. Hmm. So it was uh, that uh, because, if you recall, we used to pack the place. Uh, it was rated for 235, and there was times when we had 900 to 1,000 people in there. Wow. And it was... That must have been the time when Blondie and David Bowie and Iggy were yeah. all... Oh, yeah. And, and who else? Talking Heads were all there. Well, there were a number of uh, good national acts, but I really think that our own sort of uh, homemade or homebrewed or whatever <laughs> grown variety, there were some good acts. Uh, the uh, people from uh, the Avengers, I thought, definitely were strong, uh, strong performers. Um, some of the more avant-garde folks. Uh, well, you, well you, you had Zev, whom I don't oh, think anyone Zeb else... Oh, berserk would, percussionist, yes. Describe him. Oh, marvelous man. Ran the witchcraft or the magic shop at the Golden Eagle. Across the street. Across the street. And uh, he'd come by, uh, and, and when we had a slow night, he'd come and sit, and he'd say... Well, you know, what you need is, uh, I can clear up, I can curse 
the places, the other places that have better acts. So you know, it costs you 75 bucks, and I guarantee it. Uh, they'll be screwed for life. And if you mess with me, you'll be screwed for life. So uh, I used to razz him terribly that he was untalented and didn't deserve to be on stage. And Zev's act, he had a fabulous ear for coaxing sound, percussion sound, and really weave it together as a tapestry. Well, what did he use? I mean, he made well, he all would these. go down the he'd go down the alleys and he'd say, "Ooh, that's a great bed spring. Let me take that." And oh, there's a car axle. Boy, that's heavy. Uh, oh, but there's a there's a clutch. I I think the clutch is easier. And he'd bring in about twenty pieces of metal or aluminum or tin and uh, lay it in the back of the stage and he'd come out and he'd do a riveting 30-minute show. 15 minutes. Well, I tried to keep him to that, yes, because <laughs> I no, believe you the had shorter... Every, face it, you had him every night, it seemed like. He was, oh, no. He was the second act. And, well, that curse. And, <laughs> I didn't want to test it. But. Well, you, you, know, you remember, he, he'd have all this metal yeah. and he'd like... Um, I think he used like clothes hangers or something to hook it all together, and then he'd he'd get out in the audience and start flailing the stuff. Well, it, there there is something to be said for solo acts. You can get them up faster and back down, and uh, in when you have limited funds for the talent, and ours was based on an agreement with the performers that. All of the combined, all of the performers would get 65% of the door and that the other 35% we would use for the sound, that meant a sound guy, the lighting department, that meant the light fixtures and a lighting guy, uh, the door person and at least two security people and one stage manager. So you're talking about at least seven or eight people and even though the rents were low, we were trying to make certain that everybody would get at least 20 bucks. And there was no one that would get more, including myself. And if it didn't make it, <laughs> too bad for me. There, I mean, you you impersonated a lot of these shows. And you must have really thought about the implications of what you were seeing. Like with, with Zev, for example. I personally thought that a lot of the so-called early punk rockers didn't really like Zev, but they did because he was absolutely life-threatening in what he did. Because you never knew when a sharp, dangerous piece of metal would go flying out into yeah. the audience. And, uh, and you know, they were like, uh, I don't know. To me, that I already knew about performance art, and that's what I called it. But I, was, I wasn't sure. Everyone really understood what was going on. Well, you have to have something that's different than the day before or the day after because that's a bore. Or, you know, if it's the same thing they can see at 10 other places, which uh, was a, uh, for me, uh, became a contention with some of the performers. The performer wants to play everywhere as often as possible. I had preached a uh, philosophy of, hey, 
when you achieve a certain amount of confidence and that results of playing a lot but for us it was bad when people played at every other club and played constantly so the challenge was to 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 say to folks well can't you go up and play in Marin well they don't want us then go to Sebastopol and spread them out do your missionary work build your talent but I would I mean, my thought was to limit as to, to, to not play somebody constantly. So why did Zev or uh, others seem to end up on a lot of builds? Well, the builds would fall apart. Oh. So what do you do? <laughs> I mean, I once went out and uh, uh, we had three acts, all of them canceled. So we had no one when we started the show. So I went to the first 10 people that were in row in front of the club and said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you five bucks worth of chits for the bar if you just stand here impatiently and say, now, come on, we want in right now. So and pretty soon we got about 50 people in mm. with no one playing. And when they asked, well, who's playing? That's oh, a prank, Dirk. To be announced, they're great acts. They're coming up. So then, at the um, uh, when it came time for the first one, by that time we had been on the phone and we actually got a couple of our standbys, and they're in various stages of coming in. So uh, uh, I said to Denise, "Why don't why don't you do an impromptu strip tease?" And she said, "Well, I'll tell you what. I'll match you." one uh, piece of clothing for one that you take off and we'll stretch it out. <laughs> so I ended up using a uh, discarded uh, amp cover, vinyl cover, cut a hole in it and ended up sort of like a poncho uh, while throwing everything else that I wore out on stage. And, uh, and I can't remember who actually came in and did the next act, but by the end of the evening, the people are having a good time because they were coming up out of the audience and saying, oh, let me do something. I got a good joke. And then the joke wasn't so good, and, but the audience loved it because they could pelt them with the popcorn, which was totally innocuous when you throw it because it can't hurt them. But it's great for still photos. It's great yeah. for video and things. You've been listening to Research Conversations podcast with host V. Vale, brought to you by Research Publications and Books. Today's guest was Dirk Dirksen. Please listen in for part two of Dirk. <laughs>